0: Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome back, listeners. I hope y'all are doing well. This is Topic 3, the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, Part 6 of Series 4, Treasures of Kansas City. If this is your first time listening, then I'm so glad you decided to join us, but please pause here, go back and listen to Parts 1 through 5. This will make a lot more sense if you do that. And then, um, after you've caught up, I hope you will go back and listen to Topics 1 and 2 of this series, the Western Auto Building and the Country Club Plaza. If you have listened to this entire saga of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, then thank you for your perseverance. Um, Honestly, I can't believe there's been so much to discuss, and yet I should not have been surprised. So, recap. Part one was a biographical introduction to Mary Atkins and the Nelson family, for whom the museum is named. Part two was all about how those states finally got together to form a single museum, which opened to the public December 1933. Part three was a uh, detailed exploration of the architecture of the building and symbolism of various um, architectural elements. Part four covered the biographies of Lawrence Sickman and Paul Gardner, um, along with a couple others, but mostly those two, and uh, dived into the history of the monuments men and women who saved art and fought the Nazis in World War II. Uh, Finally, the last episode, we explored the history of the museum in the 40s and 50s, The 1950s were an especially busy decade, and the museum celebrated its 25th anniversary in 1958. Today we're going to explore the history of the Nelson-Atkins Museum of Art during the 1960s and 70s. If you are not a museum professional, um, I doubt you know this, but the 1960s, um, as I think a part of the overall social changes that America was experiencing, were a really big deal in the museum, where there was a lot of important stuff that happened. In 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson, who's a really fascinating character, um, like as a person, he had some terrible personality traits, but as a politician, so fascinating, his policies radically changed America for the better. Anyways, that has nothing to do with our show today. In 65, he signed the National Foundation of the Arts and Humanities Act, which created the National Endowment for the Arts, the NEA, and the National Endowment for the Humanities, the NEH, to, quote, develop and broad uh, sorry promote a broadly conceived national policy of support for the humanities and the arts in the United States and for the institutions which preserve the cultural heritage of the United States end quote. Today, these two uh, are fundamental cornerstones of the American museum and cultural heritage world. And I've brought them up because part of the way that they support the uh, American cultural heritage and museums is through grants. And in the 1960s, the Nelson Atkins is like, we need money. This is a really big issue that we're really concerned about. Actually, it's, it's kind of in every decade we're really concerned about money, but it seemed uh, especially worrisome in the 1960s for this museum, according to the book I've been reading. In 1962, the university trustees decided to challenge Mr. Nelson's will, saying that the stipulations he had placed on how the money he left could be invested was too restricting, and they were unable to use it to generate the kind of funding that the museum needed to continue. So they hired a lawyer, uh, Arthur Mag, to represent them in court. And in April 1963, the judge who presided over the case actually sided with the trustees, which was a really big deal. Not just for us, but I think in general, it seems like the will wins out. Maybe that's just TV. I don't know. Um, but now, instead of only being allowed to invest in real estate and only within 100 miles of Kansas City, They could invest whatever they wanted to. But money's still an issue. Uh, So in 1965, the board created the Council of Society Fellows, quote, an auxiliary organization of wealthy and prominent men in the community who would enter into some kind of annual giving program, end quote. So it began with 74 members. These are all um, like major names in the community, businessmen mostly, right? But it grew rapidly, and so by 1966, this is just one year later, they had 250 members. It was $300 a year to be a fellow, and then you could attend museum business meetings, which are, you know, like, closed. It's only for the trustees and maybe the museum director. No, probably the museum director. Anyways, um, they received all the museum publications for free. And they were invited to special pre-opening exhibit events, among many other perks. And then once Johnson signed the NFAH Act in 65, the museum started applying for federal grants as well. Alright, does anybody remember the Junior League from the last episode? Uh, They've been partnering with the Nelson Atkins Museum since 34, and they established a kick-ass docent program which other major museums watched and were like, oh, yeah, we're going to do that. Well, during this whole time, they've also been collecting books to build a children's library. And in 59, they donated $6,000 for the building of a new children's art library. And in January of 1960, the Junior Gallery and Creative Center and the Junior Library opened. Um, in fact, the Westport Garden Club heard about the proposal, and they also donated funds for this new library slash art center. The goal was to uh, educate children on art and art history, of course. Mr. James Siedelman was named the director of the gallery and the Creative Arts Center. I could find very little biographical information on Siedelman, he worked in multiple art museums and art centers across America for more than 40 years. Um, and he worked in other places besides Kansas city, uh, most notably places in Lexington, Kentucky. He worked at the Kentucky guild of arts and craftsmen and the Headley Whitney museum. And then he also founded the living arts and science center in Lexington and served as its first director. Um, also served on multiple advisory boards for again multiple art centers. He died in Lexington, Kentucky in 19 excuse me, in January 2016. So he joined the museum in 1960 when this library opened, and then he left the museum in August 1968 and was replaced by Larry Eckleberry. Um, so strange spelling, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but I feel like I'm pretty good on that. Um, And we'll come back to Larry later in this episode. One of the really cool projects that Seidman worked on as director was a series of films titled Treasures of Time, which educated students on painting, sculpture, Asian art, and American art. He also worked on a TV series called The Magic Glove. It had 13 episodes. Keller, who had been hired as the creator of European art in 54, talked about him in the last episode. He resigned in 59. And he went on to become the director of the Princeton Museum, so he's doing good for himself. To replace him, the board hired Ralph Tracy Coe. This guy had grown up surrounded by art and art history. His dad was actually an Impressionist collector, and it sounds like he was really well known for this collection. Um, His dad had also served on the board of, like, the trustee board Uh, of the Cleveland Museum of Art, and Ralph's sister Nancy was an assistant curator of painting at the Cleveland Museum. Ralphie received his bachelor's from Oberlin College in Ohio, and then his graduate degree in art history from Princeton. After college, he worked for the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and when the board approached him about coming to work at the Nelson, he was actually an assistant curator of the National Gallery in D.C., So he liked them, they liked him, he was hired September 59 as the curator of painting and sculpture. He co-settled right in, um, and he immediately started deeply investing himself into this museum, um, especially with the Friends of the Art Guild, which was a subset of the Friends of Art. Their goal was to, quote, encourage and foster an interest in modern art in Kansas City, and to make possible for Kansas City to have as fine a collection of modern art as the collection of old masters and objects of antiquity, end quote. He married Sarah Frances Forsman on August 5th, 1961. Sarah was actually one of the founders of the guild. I'm going to detour for a moment to tell you about Sarah's aunt, Um, but not too much because she's a really big name in Kansas City. And I think... She'll appear in later episodes if she doesn't get her own episode. Um, I'm talking about Helen Forsman Spencer. Just sounds really fabulous. I would love to meet her if I could do that whole time travel thing. Born in 1902, she attended KU in the 20s. She married Kenneth Spencer. They lived in Kansas City. And they started the Kenneth A. and Helen Forsman Spencer Foundation in 1949. Over the next 30 years, they donated more than $18 million to universities and museums in the Midwest, including the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. In 1962, she gave $25,000 to the museum for the creation of a library, not the children's library, a different library. The Kress Foundation also donated $15,000, and the Nelson Foundation donated $10,000 that same year. But that wasn't all that she did. From 66 to 68, she, quote, contributed funds for the purchase of European decorative arts, the installation of decorative art galleries, and the refurbishment of the Atkins Auditorium, end quote. But wait, there's more. (laughs) She is everywhere. Um, For years, she bought various works of art and then donated to the museum, like, the museum couldn't afford it or whatever. I don't know. She's like, I got you and bought it. Or again, they're like, we can't afford it. And she gave them the money to buy it, including a Monet and a De Gaulle. In 1963, another museum reached out to Coe and offered him directorship. And apparently a lot of people at the Nelson were really upset about this, but Co. turned him down. He was very happy at the Nelson and he was named assistant director to the museum in 65. Also in 1965 was the creation of the Missouri Council of Arts. And their very first meeting was held at the new library, again, the adult library, of the Nelson-Atkins Museum on September 15th. So as I said earlier, Siedelman retired in August 1968 and Larry Eckleberry took over as the director of education. His focus was on creative art. He wanted, quote, To provide young people an opportunity to develop their awareness and sensitivity to art, end quote. So in 1970, he changed the focus of the docent program. He wanted to update it, um, especially the children's tours. Two new players I'm going to introduce you to, Ellen and Mark. I know I haven't actually said much about Larry yet, but there will be more about him in a minute. Uh, sadly for Ellen and Mark, I could not find any biographical information on them from before they joined the museum. Ellen Goen studied, studied. I did that just a minute ago. She studied art history at KU in Lawrence, Kansas, and joined the staff of the museum in 1967 as co-assistant. She was a very busy lady. She quote delivered lectures and wrote labels for art objects. She also cleaned up the storage area helped set up and take down exhibits, and mopped up leaks, end quote. Two years later, the board paid for her to travel to Europe to study art. Wolferman didn't say how long uh, she was abroad, but I think it was only a few weeks, maybe a couple of months top. When she returned, they promoted her to assistant curator of programming, and then as assistant curator of programming, Ellen provided lectures f- for the Dawson's, and quote, a spring and fall subscription series of lectures, each course lasting 10 weeks, end quote. In 73, she became the assistant curator of painting and sculpture. And in 1975, she became the curator of 20th century art. This, of course, is not the end of her, but you'll have to wait until the next episode for that. And then Mark Wilson, he was the second Nelson Atkins hire of the Ford Fellows. Um, the first was Nancy Gray Thompson. So in January 1964, the Ford Foundation, which had been created by Henry Ford in 1936 to support, quote, scientific, educational, and charitable purposes, all for the public welfare, end quote, announced the creation and funding of a five-year curatorial program, and at the same time, as this announcement also donated ten thousand two hundred and twelve dollars to the naslan atkins museum in order to create an updated catalog of the frank p and harriet c uh, Burnap collection of english pottery this catalog was completed by ross taggart like most of today's characters i could find no biographical information on him he was hired uh, in 1947 as the registrar like most of today's characters i couldn't find any bio info on him And I just realized that I didn't really tell you anything about Mark, and I've already moved on. Well, (laughs) we'll come back to Mark in later this episode or the next. So Taggart was hired in 1947 as the registrar. After Keller joined in 54, Taggart became a curator and managed ancient art, decorative arts in America and Europe from 1400 to present, and prints and drawings. Keller, therefore, was in charge of medieval art, European painting, Uh, European painting, there we go, and sculpture from 1400 to 1900, and contemporary painting and sculpture in Europe and America from 1900 to present. The Ford Foundation made this announcement, hey, you know, we have this program, five years, we pay all the training, and the board, of course, said, thank you very much, and signed up for the program right away. Um, They used the funding to hire uh, Nancy, as I said, and they liked it so much that the next year... They hired uh, Mark. So Sickman, although the museum director, was also still the Asian art curator, and he personally mentored Wilson. Okay, so I guess we, we are getting to cover more of Wilson. I haven't read my notes in a couple of weeks. I've been very busy, so I had forgotten everything I had to say. This is why you write notes. Anyways, Wilson attended Yale with the intent to attend law school, But he happened to take an Asian art history class at Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio in 1963. And he just fell in love with it. So he changed his major immediately. He spent the summer of 64 at the Cleveland Art Museum. And then he returned to Yale and completed his master's in Chinese art in 68 uh, seven. He interned at the Nelson Atkins for two years. Then did a study abroad in Taipei, Taiwan, and Japan. In 1970, he returned to the Nelson Atkins Museum as Assistant Curator of Asian Art. So this is when he's getting um, that personal mentoring from Mr. Sickman. And y'all, when he becomes the Assistant Curator, he's still only 29 at this point. I was 29 when I started this podcast. Quote, he and Sickman began to work on reorganizing the museum's Asian library and co-authoring a scholarly catalog for which the Ford Foundation had provided matching matching funds on Chinese paintings in the Nelson Atkins Permanent Collection, end quote. Not to mention, during all of this, Mark is also working on his PhD at KU. In 73, Sickman finally decided he was tired of holding two positions because he retired as curator of Asian art in 73 and Wilson succeeded him. However, Sigmund is still the director at this point. And, just like Ellen, I will talk more about Wilson in the next episode. Alright, it's finally, 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 drumroll. Time to talk about the Sculpture Garden! Yay! So, in 1971, Co is at this museum gala, and this dude, Elmer Pearson, walks up to him with this idea. Pearson is a rich businessman, and he's the co-owner of the Vendo Company, which was founded in Kansas City in 1937, and they built vending machines. And the company is actually still building vending machines today. That was cool. I might look up some more um, historical information on them later. Anyway, Elmer's like, I want to make a museum to the foundation. Um, Try that again. I want to make a donation to the museum through my foundation. And during their conversation, they agree to create a sculpture garden that will, of course, be named for Pearson. So they hire Hair and Hare, who, if you remember from way back when, was the original company desired to hire, um, dang, hired to design the landscaping for the museum. Heron Hare designs the sculpture garden. The board approves it in December, and then in Kansas, um, a couple months later, the Kansas City Park Board approved it as well. They planted umber cock trees, dogwood trees, and European birch trees, and they moved some of the indoor sculptures outside, including August Rodin's *Adam*, Super famous sculpture. You guys, if you don't recognize the name, you still recognize his work. Um, The formal dedication of the Pearson Sculpture Garden was on November 17th, 1972. So in 75, a chairman of the board asked Sickman if the museum could dedicate a room to the works of Kansas City native painter Thomas Benton Hart, who it will totally be a future podcast episode someday. Um, Sickman had to shoot it down because the museum just doesn't have room to, you know, move everything around and dedicate a whole room to him. But they do still have some of his paintings on display. I don't remember precisely where they are, but... Um, They have his painting of the meeting between Hades and Persephone on display, and it's one of my favorite paintings in the museum. It's one of my favorite Greek myths. Sickman retired as museum director in 1977, and then co-became the museum's third director. And that's where we're going to end our episode today. (laughs) I know. Um, We have obviously not finished this topic by the end of the year, like I had originally planned. So thank you for staying with me all this time. Please stay with me a bit more. I have maybe, if I'm lucky, one episode left. Definitely no more than two. Okay, I swear. Um, Sources before we go. So, of course, the main source has been the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art and History by Christy Wolferman. Other sources, actually for this particular episode, that's pretty much the only source that I used. Um, I looked up the Ford Foundation and, you know, checked out their website to learn about how it got started, but uh, I don't really remember looking at anything else. For cool merchandise, please visit Zazzle.com, that's Z-A-Z-Z-L-E.com, forward slash store, forward slash homegrown, underscore Casey, underscore store. Make sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and now Tumblr. I don't have very much on Tumblr yet, but I'm going to be adding to it soon. You can also now subscribe and listen to the show on Facebook. Make sure to rate and review me on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, but Apple Podcasts is really the best. Um, the more ratings and reviews that I get, the higher up in the charts that I go. It makes me happy, actually, to hear directly from you and it. Sometimes I giggle over it like the guy who said that my voice was relaxing. <laughs> um, and it just it makes it easier for people to find me. You can visit my website for more information on each episode. That is homegrownkc.wordpress.com. Yes, I'm still behind. Um, I'm sure that at least one of you is yelling at me about that. Listen, once I get this series finished, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to update that podcast or er, that website. And I know I've said that before, this time I'm actually going to do that. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com, or DM me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Check me out on Audia A-U-D-E-A, it's a new audio-based platform. Create a profile, follow the show, you have all my episodes there, it's awesome. I also hope you'll consider becoming a monetary supporter of the show if you are able. You can do so by subscribing to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash HomegrownKC or RedCircle.com, R-E-D-C-I-R-C-L-E dot com slash HomegrownKC. You get charged that day and then on the first of every month afterwards. I'm only asking for $5 a month, which... Come on, y'all spend more on that on, on coffee in one day. Uh, you will. First of all, look. Everything that you donate goes back into the show. Pays for my gas as I run around doing research and uh, entrance to museums while when I do my um, homegrown KC adventures. You get back an item from the store valued at five dollars or less. You get a shout-out on each episode. Thank you, Bjorn and Joan, for your continued support. And you get access to exclusive bonus content. For this series, my companion Patreon episode is the interview with Christy Wolferman, who's the author of the book I've been reading um, for this episode, yeah. Um... So, an example of one of these episodes, these bonus Patreon episodes, is the Riger Distillery episode, which has been available to the public for about six weeks now. Um, only two weeks left to listen to that, y'all. January 1st, it's going back to me coming a Patreon only episode. Um, but I sit down with other historians, uh, museum persons, for this, I sat down with the owner of Riger Distillery. And we talk about the research. Thank you goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the dear missus for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music. And to local libraries who enable me to gather my research. Happy holidays. Happy late Thanksgiving to the Americans. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Yule. Happy Solstice. Happy St. Nicholas Day. Feliz Las Posadas, and joy to all of you who celebrate any other midwinter holiday that I could not find information on. Thanks for listening. Cheers.
1: Seem to shake this feeling, and I can seem to get you off my mind.